today's reading is Acts 17, 16 through 28. While Paul waited for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. He began to interact with the Jews and Gentile God worshipers in the synagogue. He also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion too. Some said, what an amateur, what's he trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him into custody and brought him to the council on Mars Hill. What is this new teaching? Can we learn what you were talking about? You've told us some strange things and we want to know what they mean. They said this because all Athenians, as well as the foreigners who live in Athens, used to spend their time doing nothing but talking about or listening to the newest thing. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God we live, move, and exist. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dana, for that wonderful reading. My name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace. If you're new with us, I'd love to meet you. So many of us would love to meet you. Dare I say, all of us would love to meet you. Um, and I trust that God has something to say to us. And because I believe that that is true, I want to pray and ask that he would, but also that we would be open to what it is God has to say. So will you pray with me? God, thinking about this text and what Paul says, that you are the one in whom we live and move and have our being, you are the God who has moved toward us, who wants to be known. You're the God who is active and who speaks. You're the God who has revealed yourself in the person of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection and has therefore changed everything. You are the author of the story. You are the creator of heaven and earth. And yet, you are the God who wants to be known by us, who wants to know us. I ask that you would speak, that we would hear. And there are so many reasons, thinking of my own heart, God, of why I would not be able to hear. But I pray that your voice would be louder and break through all of the things 
so that I might hear what you have to say. I pray that that would be true of all of us, that we might be open to a new word that you might have for us, and that we'd be transformed by it, that you would encourage us, that you'd convict us, that you would call us near, that you would embrace us, that you would challenge, ultimately, that we would be people who accept your invitation to come and follow you and therefore discover who we are in light of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So grateful for the gift of Maisha's words last week. This idea of the only way forward is together. And it's a gift to think of the people here that we are together with and what God might have for us. We're going to continue this morning in the book of Acts. So we took a break last week hearing from Maisha. We're going to get back into our series, which we've been in for the last couple months and will be until the end of next month. But if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts 17, we're going to look at the text this morning, look at the Apostle Paul in Athens. And here's where I'd like to start this question. What is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? What is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? Do you even know? I would imagine you would hope you know. But then I wonder, if we were to think about that question, what might come to our minds, what we might think of? So what do you hope is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? And also, what really is the object of your commitment, your worship, and your trust. So these are the things that Paul's going to be talking about, going to be exposing uh, here in Acts 17 in Athens. Now, I just want to look at the text briefly, and then I want to offer um, some observations. So Acts 17, starting in verse 16. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so Paul was waiting for his friends to arrive, and it says he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. And then some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, well, he seems to be proclaimer of foreign divinities. So that's where I want to stop. So here Paul is in Athens waiting for his friends to arrive. He looks at the city. Now, if you think about Athens, think about the Parthenon, think about this the city that is really the embodiment, the pinnacle of the classical world. This is where things, ideas began, were birthed. And so here Paul is, and he looks around, and he sees that this city is full of idols, and it says he's distressed. And so Paul, being a good Jew that he is, right, offended by the idols, but also one who wants to discuss this, confront it, argue about it. So here he is arguing about, talking about these idols. He finds himself in the marketplace. And it says that he, he was engaged with, these, with some philosophers, Epicurean philosophers and some Stoic philosophers. Now the Epicureans, their religious thought, now this is something you should know. Now it wasn't like in Athens people were atheists. People were very deeply religious. It was just what they were worshiping that might have been different. Now, the Epicureans had this sense, this worldview, that God was some, or the gods were distant, far off, created things, then walked away. Now, their greatest good, or what they wanted to do, was to really go after pleasure and diminish pain. That was their hope in the world. Now, the Stoics were a little bit different. God wasn't, the gods weren't somehow far off. 
the gods were this thing, the logos, this, this sort of being or this sense of oneself that was located everywhere, everywhere, almost pantheistic, but really located inside. Now, the greatest good for the Stoics was to sort of how, somehow get along with the world. Now, you've heard that if, if somebody is called a Stoic, the, the caricature is just somebody who doesn't feel much or is just kind of you know, sanguine, just walking around, whatever. But the deep hope for the Stoic is to actually not be too high or too low, but to have some sort of equanimity, some sort of peace with the way things are. This internal peace with the way the world is. So Paul is trying to argue with these various philosophers. Then they, say, they start to say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I love the rendition of what um, Dana read, which is he's an amateur. They're confused. What, why is Paul talking about these foreign divinities? Now, they say that they think he's talking about more than one God because he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection, which in the Greek was anastasis. So it was this sense of you have Jesus and anastasis, almost like this idea of, oh, here are two, here's this power couple, this new power couple, these gods that, that Paul is trying to introduce. So they call him a babbler. So then let's keep going in the text. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And they asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange. So we would all like to know what it means. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So the Areopagus was this place, sort of in the center of the city, which was almost like a court. Now we need to see this. Paul is on trial in a way. They bring him to the middle of this court, and they're wanting to test him, putting him on trial, almost in the way that Socrates was before, and trying to introduce new, different divinities to see if he has something to stand on. Or is he going to be found guilty, perhaps ultimately executed? So then Paul begins to defend himself. And he says this, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians... I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown, unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So I want to stop here and do a little of an aside on this small thing called idolatry. So Paul begins being distressed in this text because of all of the idols that he sees. Then as he begins his defense, he begins to say that he sees all of these different things, all of these different gods that the Athenians have created. And it's made me wonder what Paul would say if he walked among us, among our city, would he be as distressed with the idolatry that is in view? What would he see? How would he locate it? How would he understand it? Sure, we, as a people, we don't create often things out of stone. We don't create gods that look like people or animals and then worship them often. That's not what you see. We worship things usually made of plastic, rectangular, very bright screens. 
But what might Paul actually see among us of what we worship? Because idolatry is alive and well. Idolatry is all around us. My name is Daniel Long, and I am an idolater. So what are the idols that we worship? What is an idol? An idol is something we expect to give to us what only God can give to us. It's something that we give power because we in turn want something of what that offers. Some sort of identity, some sort of, of good, some sort of, of picture or representation of what the good life, something that we are grasping and wanting, we then begin to get from places other than God. So what do you expect to give you what only God can give you? What do you entrust your life to? What gives you an identity, a sense of worth? There's nothing removed from the possibility of becoming an idol. So that's why I began with that question. What is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? Now, of course, you're the easy ones of what potential idols might be all around us. Money, sex, power. Right? Those are the things that, that seem super, super simple. Of course. Like money can become this thing that's an idol that I want. I want it to give me significant satisfaction, power. I want sex to give me something, to give me a sense of feeling, to give me a sense of, of knowing who I am at my core. I want a sense of power or authority to give me this, this real desire of having a type of control. Those are the easy ones. But maybe there are more subtle ones. Family. Children. Work. Success. Political ideology. A cause. Even a good one. Knowledge, intellect, adventure, freedom, autonomy, originality, ambition, spirituality, religion. These are all things that can become idols. Because ultimately what you are doing is you are replacing God with those things because you expect from them something that only God can give you. And the dangerous thing about idols is, is that they really seem to work. Idols really seem to work because they do for a time give us a sense of ourself. They do for a time give us a sense of identity. They do for a time remind us that we are not purposeless. But over time, eventually, they will fail. And the Bible says we become what we worship. William Stringfellow, like a social critic, a theologian, says this, to serve idols is the elementary response of humans to the reality of fallen existence in this world. The fall begets the human quest for meaning in existence. Men and women search for their lost identity. They seek somehow to bridge the brokenness of their relationships within themselves and with others and with the principalities and powers. They grope for justification. And in doing so, they set up persons or things or abstractions as idols and serve them. And here's the dangerous thing, as it says in Psalm 115. 
Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They make no sound in their throats. And here is the haunting image. Those who make them are like them. So are all who trust in them. It's haunting. So what is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? As good Christians, it can actually possibly be what we know of as religion or spirituality. You actually replace God with this thing that you do or hope to be in order that might give you some sense of satisfaction. And over time, what you will realize is when you replace God with something like religion or spirituality, you think that will fail you, and then you equate that with God, and you will leave and abandon it. There are so many deconstruction stories right now happening in the church, in the evangelical church, and that's what I wonder is going on. Have they actually replaced God with what they imagined and hoped God would give them, and then when that didn't turn out to be true, they left it all together. That is possible for each and every one of us. But see, when we lose our sense of God, we then lose our sense of self, our sense of who we are to be. There's an author named David Foster Wallace. He gave a speech, a sermon, if you will, a secular sermon at a college to some students in 2005. And I'm going to read a long excerpt from it. And just imagine it like somebody preaching to a group of students. And I want you to hear his diagnosis of what the issue is in culture. And it sounds so, so appropriate for today. But I want, I want you to see if you can catch what the fix is. So here's what he says. Now, if you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your own default setting, then you, like me, will not consider possibilities that aren't pointless and annoying. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will be within your power to experience a crowded, loud, slow, consumer hell-type situation as not only meaningful, but scared, sacred, on fire with the same force that lit the stars, compassion, love, the subsurface unity of all things. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide on how you're going to try to see it. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths 
before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, epigrams, parables, cliches, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll never, you'll always need more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He continues, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're our default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world, it will not discourage you from operating on your own fear and contempt and frustration and craving. It will not discourage you from operating out of the default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Man, that's so powerful. He continues, but there are all different types of freedom. And the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad pretty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Now that sounds like a powerful sermon, but here's the thing. David Foster Wallace seems to be able to name very accurately and appropriately the problem that we choose what we worship and what we worship affects us deeply. But what is the fix as he suggests it? It is found inside of us. If we can just somehow choose to worship something differently, then we will then be able to save ourselves. If we just had the power to pay better attention at something better and more fulfilling, then perhaps we wouldn't get lost in this default setting. We wouldn't have this gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. But if you are like me, you will know that you have tried to fix yourself and it is not possible. The default setting is so strong. The loop seems impossible to break and to get out of. I feel pulled and pulled in a direction, and no matter how hard I try, I can't somehow get out of it. See, David Foster Wallace actually sounds a lot like one of the Stoic philosophers. This sense that if you can just find some sort of self-help or some plan of self-sanctification, then you'll be good. And if you know anything about David Foster Wallace's story, you will know the tragic end of that way of thinking. 
being able to know and articulate the problem, but not really having some sort of way to get out of it, feels like a burden and a weight that you cannot possibly bear. But here is the good news. That there is a God that is better and more beautiful and more wonderful than any of the other gods that we choose to worship, consciously or unconsciously. And that is what Paul is going to go after in the Areopagus. Back to verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And since we are God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think that deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what does Paul do? He begins to paint a picture of who God actually is. And so who is this God revealed in Jesus? Now here are some of the things that Paul says on this slide. And now this is the good news, if you can read that. I'm glad I have it here, because I can't read this. This is who the God revealed in Jesus is. And you and I need to hear these words, and some you need to hear more than others. So if there is one, when we go through this list, that you grab hold, on, you grab hold of and can't let go of, pay attention to that. Wrestle with that. So who is the God revealed in Jesus, as Paul lays out? The God revealed in Jesus Christ is creator and holy other. God is outside of the world. He is other than the world. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is Lord over heaven and earth. See, God resides over the world in contrast to these other philosophies that thought that God and the world were, were one thing. No, God is holy other. God is Lord over it and yet makes himself available within it. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is the giver of life and breath. Why is this good news? Because God is the giver and we are the recipients. God has gifted us with life. Here's good news. We are the needy ones. And that is good news. Because in our neediness, God gives. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is Lord over our history, our present, and our future. God is the God of history, which means there is purpose, which means this is not accidental. The God revealed in Jesus Christ wants to be found and known. 
God is not disinterested or uninvolved. God is not an unknown God. And that is what Paul is doing at the beginning when he sees the shrine to an unknown God. He is actually poking holes at their ignorance, saying, no, God is not an unknown God. God wants to be known, can be known. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is not far from us. He's not far from you and me. God is not distant. God has not created something, brought us together, then walked away. Some of you need to hear that. God has not walked away from you. The God revealed in Jesus Christ has made us in his image. When Paul talks here about we are his offspring, we have been created by God, that the image of God is not found in silver or gold. No, the image of God is found in me and in you. Because when God created us, he created us in his image. One of the dangerous things about idolatry is not that you're just replacing um, God, worship of God with the worship of something else. It's actually you, something that you are not living into the calling you've been given, which is to image the creator faithfully. We are God's offspring. We have dignity. We have value. We have worth. You have it because you are here and because God has given it to you. You do not need to earn it. Some of you need to hear that today. It means we also have a vocation and a calling. We know that God is one who has shown us what he's like through Jesus. So not only is he not far away, not only can we find him, he also shows us what he's like and has shown us what he's like in the incarnation in his embodiment in the person of Jesus Christ. The God revealed in Jesus Christ will judge and reestablish the world in light of the righteousness of Jesus. Which means because God has not walked away, God has not abandoned it, it means our future, God's people is secure. It means that God will bring things, the world, to a completion. The injustices, the brokenness, the school shootings, terrorism, assault. It means that these things that feel like they're, they're so rampant in the world because God has not abandoned the world, because he's not walked away, because the world will be judged in light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ means that God will make things right. And why do we have this assurance? Because the God revealed in Jesus Christ offers us hope through the resurrection. Now, this is what it all hinges on. And we know this is actually the fulcrum because it's when hearing this that people walk away. Paul's hearers walk away. Some respond. Some hear it as a word of an, uh, of an affront. This is unbelievable. What do you mean about the resurrection? Well, for Paul, it means everything. Because it means the vindication of what God is doing in Jesus. It means actual hope. Kate, Pol Kate Bowler, she wrote a wonderful book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved. And she wrote a more recent book, and she says this about hope. She says, one small thing I landed on is that hope isn't what I thought it was. 
a story about us. Instead, it's a story about God that's dropped like an anchor in the future. Imagine that image. It's a story about God that's dropped like an anchor in the future. And God is pulling us toward it, and that feels like a someday in which there will be no more tears. And that's why the resurrection matters. And that's why it all hinges on what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, in effect, what Paul is saying here to these people is, is God is a holy other, but God is not distant, God is not out of reach, and God ultimately can be trusted. So what's the point of worshiping these other things that have been made by human hands that we have given worth when there is a God who is outside of us, holy other, but not distant, and who can be known in a God we can trust. And so I'm going to end with where I began. What is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? What is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? Often it feels like our two options, much like the Epicurean option or the Stoic option, one is to just white-knuckle it through life squeezing all the possible pleasure out of it. One is just simply finding peace with the world as things are. But what if there's another way? What if there is another way in which we surrender ourselves, we give ourselves up to God and let him have his way with us? The word for this is repentance, which is what Paul calls them to do. To surrender ourselves knowing that we, even in our best options of self-help and self-sanctification, cannot possibly do it on our own. Surrender ourselves up to the one who is worthy of our worship. So what is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? Now, for those who are wondering, okay, this sounds great. I don't want to be an idolater. I recognize that I am. What do I do? What are you, what are you telling me to do? First thing I'm telling you to do is to wrestle with this question honestly and with time. To wrestle with this question of what might have your worship. Chances are it's something different than you thought. Chances are it's many things that are competing against each other, which is why we feel so anxious and crazy all the time. So wrestle with this question. The next thing is, confess it. Confess it to the one who is worthy of your worship. Bring it before God. Actually talk to God about why you trust this thing more than him. What does this thing give you that you don't think God will give you? What's underneath that? I mean, actually think about that. Explore that. Again, the things I'm offering you, you cannot do for five minutes after the sermon. This is an overtime conversation, posture that you might have with God. It reminds me of this thing I read. Henry Nouwen, whom I love, went to Mother Teresa, and he said, can you help me? 
in, in living out my vocation as a priest? What, do you, what should I do? And she says, you should spend one hour a day in adoration of your Lord and then just never do anything you know is wrong. <laughs> I've been wrestling with that for, for the last couple weeks since I read it because I actually think it's so beautiful what she offers now. What she offers isn't the type of prayer that I'm comfortable with, which is to come to God so that he can solve my problems, which is easy. Honestly, one of my idols is wanting things to be solved. What she offers him is a complete redirection of focus and attention, adoration on your, of your Lord, adoring God, which sounds a lot like worship, spending an hour doing that, it would be good for us to discuss and wrestle with as a community what that means for each of us in our own lives. And then never do anything you know is wrong. So good. It's the greatest. You know, there's another prayer that I think gets at this, that I found myself praying at different points in my life. It's something that I live my day with through praying which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the Jesus prayer. It's like an Eastern Orthodox Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. They're the only ask in that prayer is that I might be one who is a recipient of God's mercy. It begins with this acknowledgement of who God is, of Lord Jesus Christ, the ask that because Jesus is Lord and I am not, then I am one who is in need of mercy. Also because I am one whose life often lives in contrast to that lordship. And so there's this redirection, this reorientation that I think is possible for us, that I think Paul is wanting for the Athenians. He wants for you and he wants for me. And so what is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust? Confess it. Talk to God about it. And perhaps we can spend some time with our focus and attention drawn some other place to the one who deserves ultimately our worship. And I want to give you space to actually do that right now. Some space, some quiet. I'm going to stay up here actually. So maybe a couple minutes. I want you to sit with that question of what is the object of your worship, your commitment, and your trust. And I bet that you have heard something this morning that makes that apparent to what it might be for you. Well, confess it to God. Confess that to God, what is taking his place in your life. Repent. I want you to do that right now. And then we're going to have some time for prayer.
holy silence feels. Um, There's going to be an opportunity to pray. And the word that kept coming to mind um, was the word repent. And, and And I wonder if in this time there's been something that, that God has revealed to you that perhaps you need to or would like to or feel the freedom to share uh, in a desire of wanting to turn away from what that was and, and turn to God. There are going to be people on the side who want to pray with you. And, uh, but I wonder if there's been, there's some of you who've this morning recognition of living your whole life in worship of something else and recognize there's a better way. And that better way is Jesus um, that's a pivotal thing. It's a pivotal moment for you. And, and that's something you should probably share with somebody and pray with about. So I don't know who that is for, but it might be for somebody.